It is a joy, but it is, um, it is a dangerous thing as well. I want to preach it accurately such that the words coming from my mouth, if it is accurate to the words on the scriptures in front of you, it's, very, it's the very words of God speaking to you, if that's the case. So if you've not turned there yet, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, we'll be spending our time there this morning. We're going to be talking about uh, temptation. Um, I'm going to read the text, and then we'll, we'll work through it slowly. Hopefully, by the end of it, you'll have uh, some of these verses memorized as we're going to be breaking them down. First Corinthians chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 12 through 14. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Would you pray with me? Father, the words here that you have written through the Apostle Paul are weighty words, very important for us to, to heed, listen to. God, is impossible for us to listen to on our own and obey on our own. So God, we're asking for your help, for your grace, the empowering work of your spirit to not just be hearers of the word, but be doers. Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts this morning to love Jesus more than whatever temptation we would give into. Lord, be with us this morning. I pray that your word would go forth in mighty power for what it is, your very words. And I pray that the people here would receive them as that, your words to us. We pray these things for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Every single person in this room at some level, is in the midst of some kind of temptation. You have some sort of heat, some sort of pressure weighing on you in life that is pushing you to respond in one of two ways. You could respond to this pressure that you're feeling in a godly way or a sinful way. Those are the options. For some of you, it may be something as small as hunger pains, Maybe you forgot breakfast this morning. You're hungry. It's hard for you to pay attention during the singing, during the scripture reading. It may be hard for you to pay attention during this sermon. For others of us, it, it may be that we are experiencing a great deal of suffering, just in general, in our life, that's outside of our control. We have no handle on it, and it's giving us the option to respond either in a godly way or a sinful way. We will, will we respond to our suffering with sin of our own, or will we choose to have an attitude and posture of faith in the character of God, no matter how difficult the suffering? And still there are others who are feeling the lure of a particular sin, perhaps this uh, a sin you, you gave into even last night, you're recalling. Maybe you're feeling enticed toward the forbidden. You too have a choice to make. How will you respond to that pull that you feel in your heart? Temptation is common and prevalent. 
we are always, all the time, being tempted by something. Now, the question is, how do we overcome it? How do we fight against it rather than giving into it? And the, the answer to that question is very, very simple. The answer is maybe more simple than what we might think. But the appropriation of this answer into our lives is far from easy. And here's the answer to the question. How do we overcome temptation? How do we fight against it? Here's the answer. We believe in the promises of God, rooted in the character of God. It's really simple, but not easy to appropriate. We must believe in the promises of God, which are rooted in God's character, rooted in who he is. And we might think, is that it? Is that really it? Is that all there is to overcoming temptation? Is that really it? Now that is the answer, and here's how I know that's the answer. It's biblical. One of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why we give in to any particular temptation, whether it's, it's something as small as a lack of focus during corporate worship due to hunger pains, or if it's just something as big as you're ready to walk out on a difficult marriage. Whatever the reason is, whatever the temptation is, it's all the same. The reason why we give in to temptation is because we are failing to believe in the promises of God rooted in his character. We, we, are, we are replacing the truth about who God is and what he's promised for us with lies. You just think about this. We never, ever, never, ever fall prey to temptation when our hearts are dwelling upon and are overcome by the truth of who God is for us in Jesus Christ, right? Never do we fall into temptation when our hearts are ruled by who God is and what he's promised for us in Jesus. However, every single time that we choose to give in to temptation, to sin, we are believing some kind of lie about ourselves, about God, about the nature of our situation, we're always believing lies. So, if this is true, that we give into temptation because we believe lies, then the way we overcome temptation towards sin, no matter what the circumstance is, is we are to fight to believe. It's a fight of faith, a fight to believe in the promises of God rooted in the character of God. As a pastor... I have seen sin destroy individuals. I've seen sin destroy marriages, destroy families, and destroy even churches. So I want you to hear this message as a plea from God's word to fight sin hard, to not play games with sin. John Owen, a theologian many years ago, he's dead, he put it like this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The question is, how do we kill it? How do we kill it? And I'm going to argue from this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that one vital way to kill sin, to not give in to temptation, is by attacking the lies we believe about the temptation, which are the cause of us giving in to that temptation. So, Let's consider from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, seven common lies that we believe when it comes to temptation. 
Seven common lies we believe about our temptation. I would ask you to widen your hearts to hear from God through the Bible, to examine your own tendency to minimize or even justify any particular temptation in your life. Seven common lies. Number one, I've got a handle on this. Lie number one, I've got a handle on this. Put differently, I, I won't ever struggle with that particular kind of sin. I don't, I don't think I would ever commit a sin like that. I've got a handle on this temptation. Look at verse 12. Just to let you know, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, so it may be a little bit different from yours, but it captures the same idea. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I don't know if you've uttered these words before. I've heard people utter these words before. I even said them myself that we may say these kind of things, that that, uh, that particular temptation is not something that's a problem for me. And then come to find very quickly it becomes a problem because we think we're standing. We are in a very dangerous place when our mindset is, I've got a handle on this particular sin because that makes us ripe for the attack of Satan. Satan drools when he sees the attitude and demeanor of Christians who think like this. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now the implication is this. None of us are above any sin. None of us is beyond committing any sin. And the moment that we think we are is the moment we are ripe for committing it. In fact, this was the problem with with the Israelites in the Old Testament. And that's why Paul, if you look at verse 12, Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. He uses the word therefore at the beginning of verse 12 because he's, he's drawing a conclusion to an argument he had been developing in the first 11 verses of this chapter. He reminds us, the church, of Israel's poor example in fighting temptation. So look at, jump back to verse 6. Look at verse 6 and notice what he says. He says, now these things took place as examples. These things are referring to that uh, event in Exodus 32 that was read earlier in the service. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, as Israel did. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Come straight out of that quote, come straight out of Exodus chapter 32, describing Israel giving in to the temptation of idolatry while they're traveling in the wilderness. You remember that account? They, they didn't know where Moses was, and so they pressured Aaron, the high priest, to make a golden calf for them to worship, which reminded them of the gods that they used to worship when they were in Egypt. They came out of Egypt, and Acts chapter 7 says that their hearts, when they made this golden calf, their hearts were turned back to Egypt, presumably meaning that they found some sense of security there. They're out in the open wilderness, very insecure. Let, me, let us worship something. We need to worship something for some sense of security. And they, all they could think of was what they worshipped when they were in Egypt. And so Paul nearly 1,500 years later, recounts this event for us that we might learn from their sin. Look at verse 8. It says, 
we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, the practice of idol worship often included some forms of sexual immorality, so that's why he includes that. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And that leads the Apostle Paul to conclude, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. In other words, what makes us think we are better than the Israelites? I mean, what, what makes us think that we are above the kind of sin that they committed? We may think, oh, I'm, I don't commit idolatry. We'd never do that. We have our own idols today. It may not be a golden calf. Plenty of other things, especially when you push deep into your own heart and you see cravings and longings that are replacing God from ruling your heart. It's called an idol. One of the ways you know you're succumbing to the lie that we're talking about here, the lie that I'm above this or that sin, this or that temptation, one of the ways we know we're falling prey to that is this. You look down upon others who struggle with that sin. You have a tendency to do this? Looking down upon other people when they struggle with some sort of sin, what is their problem? How, how, do, they, how do they struggle with this? It's not an issue. What's their problem? We're falling prey to this lie. We're above it. And we do this with the Israelites all the time. You just read the Old Testament, read through the book of Judges. Some of you may have read through the book of Judges recently, and you'll find your heart saying, what is going on? What is, what is their deal? I can't believe that they continue to fall into the same sin again and again and again. You hear the, the language in the book of Judges, and again they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and turned to idols. And again they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and turned to idols. And we think, what, what is the deal? Don't they know what happens when they go to idolatry? God judges them. They get punished, and then they cry out to God again. What's their problem? And then we realize quickly, at least we ought to realize quickly, that's me every single day. Again, I do what is evil in the sight of the Lord and chase after idols. We need to beware of thinking that we are above any particular temptation. And know this. Those who are pursuing holiness most fervently and those who are killing sin most vehemently are also the ones who believe this truth. There is no sin I cannot commit. I am not above any particular temptation. It requires a great deal of humility to admit this. In fact, the destructive power underneath this lie that I'm above this or that sin? What is, what's the destructive power underneath that? What's, what's underneath? What's lurking underneath that? It's pride, isn't it? It's just pure pride to think that. We have an inaccurate assessment of ourselves, and we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So if we're going to overcome temptation to sin, we must realize I am not beyond committing any sin. Think about it in these terms. How do, how do people typically fall into, you know, what we think is the big sins? A lot of times we categorize sins, oh, that's a really big sin, I would never do that. You know, say, uh, unfaithfulness in a marriage, or 
or, or cheating in a big way on, uh, in your job. I would never do that. How do people typically fall into those kind of sinful patterns? I mean, do you think two professing Christians wake up one morning and their, Christian, their, their marriage has just gone sour? They just wake up one morning and say, hey, I, I just, I'd like to be unfaithful this morning. Usually doesn't work like that, right? There's a series of choices that are being made that lead up to that. That's why we have to fight hard in the little things so that we don't end up in a place where we realize, how did I get here? I'll tell you how you get there. You didn't fight sin in the little areas. You didn't fight your temptation in the little things that quickly led to that. So we must take seriously the little choices that we make by remembering this truth. There is no sin I am unable to commit. That's lie number one. Lie number two, my temptation is unique. Or to put it differently, no one understands me. No one understands what I'm going through. My situation is different from, from everyone else's. My temptation is unique. That's lie number two. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What is the Apostle Paul saying to us here? He's saying what you're going through is not unique to you. When we start to believe I'm the only one who's tempted in this way, it leads us to think no one else can truly understand what I'm going through. And when we start thinking that, there's little hope for enduring the temptation. This lie is so powerful because it puts us in isolation. And isolation is the worst place to fight temptation, is it not? Being all alone, feeling like you're all alone, that's not a good place to fight sin. When you are dealing with sin alone, you are a perfect candidate for falling. Sometimes I wonder if some of us want to believe this lie, that my temptation is unique, no one understands me. We want to believe this lie because it gets us off the hook. It gets us off the hook for how we respond to the temptation. Have you ever been confronted about your sin? You either think, or maybe you actually verbalize this. Say, this, this person has no right to tell me how I'm supposed to live. They have no right to tell me how I'm supposed to live here. They're, they're not going through what I'm going through. If they, were, if they were going through what I'm going through, they wouldn't be talking to me like this. They wouldn't be confronting me in this way. It's just a cop-out. We're tempted to believe this. It's a cop-out, and it kills spiritual growth. To believe the lie, my temptation is unique. Because what's the truth? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, there are people, many other people, who have gone through something similar to what you're going through. You, you're not alone. That's a really powerful truth. At least it should be for you. You're not alone in what you're going through. One person I know who can relate to your struggle is named Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one whom in every respect was tempted as we are. So it's just simply not true to say that we're in alone and we're all alone in whatever particular situation we're dealing with. 
We can never say no one understands me. Why? Because Jesus does. It says he does in Hebrews chapter 4. I know, Jesus says, I know exactly what you're going through because I went through something like that. But the reality is, not only has Jesus gone through such similar things, so have other people. People in this church, even. Paul says, no temptation is overtaking you. That's not common to man, which I take to mean other people, common to man, other people around you in your church. I meet with plenty of people on a regular basis, and I have this conversation again and again and again. They're, they're sharing with me something that they've not shared with anyone before, something they're very ashamed about. Why are they ashamed? Because they feel like they're the only one who's struggling with this. And I say to them, hmm, it's very common. What you're going through, what you're struggling with, very common. And you should see the expression on their face. What? I thought I was the only one. You're not. In fact, I just talked to someone about this yesterday. What? In fact, this is something that I have to deal with on a regular basis. What? It's very freeing to know you're not alone. You're not alone. And so we must realize this because it kills the fight to think you're all alone. Beware of believing the lie. What I'm going through is unique. It is not. You want to know why that's good news? Just think about why this is good news, that you're not alone in this, that other people have struggled in a similar way to the temptation that you're facing. Because other people who have gone through very similar things that you're going through, God has brought them through. So you're not alone in that. God brought them through. He can do the same for you. It's very freeing. Now you may respond, well, why hasn't he? See, see these, these people, God brought them through this particular temptation. Why, why hasn't he for me? Why hasn't he brought me through? What's his problem? I mean, if, if God is really good, why is he continuing to let me go through what I'm going through? It's really hard. And this leads to the third lie that we need to be aware of in the midst of temptation. Lie number three. God is not good for allowing me to go through this. Notice what Paul says in verse 13 again. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. And notice this. God is what? Faithful. God is faithful. The moment we start believing lies about our temptation is the moment we stop viewing God accurately. Say that again. The moment we start believing lies about any particular temptation is the very moment we stop viewing God accurately. When, when our focus is on our difficult circumstance, whatever we are facing, to the point where we lose focus of God, what's going to happen? We're, we're going to get a distorted picture of who God is. You start viewing God through the lens of your circumstances, he's going to look messed up on the other side. What needs to happen? You need to reverse it. You need to view your circumstance, your temptation that you're going through that's really difficult through the lens of who you know God to be as he reveals himself here. And guess what? It's going to give you a different outlook on your circumstance. God is faithful. He's not going to seem faithful when all our focus is on what we're going through. This is not a hopeless situation that you are in, whatever you're facing, because God is faithful. 
That's what it keeps saying. God is faithful. God is faithful. Now, we have to ask the question, what is he faithful to do? What's he faithful for? We see in verse 13 that he's faithful to accomplish three things. Verse 13, God is faithful to not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's number one. Number two, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. And number three, that you may be able to endure it, or he will allow you to stand up under it. Now, these, these next three points of what God is faithful to do will serve as our next three points in this message. And so let's ask the question, what lies do we believe in place of these truths here in verse 13? So taking lie number four, what, what lie do we believe in the place of God will not let me be tempted beyond my ability? What's the lie that we tend to believe there? And that's this, lie number four, I don't have the resources to overcome this. There is no strength to help me fight through this. You see that? Let me read verse 13 again. I hope by the end of this message you'll have verse 13 memorized. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. This is what we need to see here. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Many times... Because the circumstance we are in is putting so much pressure on us, it feels that we just don't have the strength to fight anymore. And so we give in. We respond with sin. And it's at these times that we need to remember, God will give you the strength that you need to fight. He's not going to give you more than you can bear. Why? Because he's going to give you the strength to fight through it. A few months ago, I got lunch with a, a man here in the area from another church that day I got lunch with him, the day before he buried his 18-year-old son. Some of you may be familiar with the story. Uh, you may have read it in the news. This, this 18-year-old man was uh, at Barton Creek, slipped, fell 20 feet to his uh, death. I got lunch with the, the man about a week later after the death, a day after the funeral. And, and I, was, I was just amazed by the sustaining faith in this man. The guy even said, I'm not even sure if my son was a Christian. Can you imagine? I don't even know if my son is in heaven. Yet he still had faith in God to endure. He was grieving. Don't get me wrong. It's not like he was all happy about this. He was grieving tremendously, but he was not grieving with one who has no hope. Why? I asked him, what, how, what is it about God that's sustaining your faith through this? And just with tears, just weeping. And he had just taken a bite of sandwich and he's spitting food out. He said, it's this, God knows me. I just can't get the truth out of my head that my God knows me. And I, I couldn't get that out of my head. What did he mean by that? I mean, weeks went by. What did he mean by that? What, what about the truth that God knows him was so comforting to him that allowed him to endure through this difficult time? What was it? And then I came to this text. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God knows you. He knows you inside and out. Why? Because he made you. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. This is a sustaining truth. How easy it is for us to think things like, based on how difficult my circumstance is, based on whatever I'm going through, it's just natural for me to respond in anxiety. It's just natural for me to respond in anger towards this individual. It's just natural. You say that often? I've said it. And the reality is, 
if you're a Christian, it's not natural. It's unnatural because you're not just human anymore. As we say, I'm only human. Cut me, cut me some slack. I'm only human. You're not only human. You're a new human. You're a new creature in Christ. So you don't have to give in to sin no matter how difficult the temptation is. Because as we read earlier from Ephesians chapter 1, it says the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and the same power that is causing him to sit at the right hand of God and rule over the nations is the same power that's at work within you right now if you're a Christian. That's motivation. <laughs> I mean, that, that should motivate you to fight sin. You know why? Because you have the power within you not to give in to it. Do not underestimate the power of God in your life to endure even the most difficult temptations. Resist the lie that you don't have the strength because you do. Why? God is faithful. God is faithful, and he will give you the strength to fight through any given temptation. But there's another truth that we need to consider from verse 13, which is rooted in God's faithfulness, and it's this. With the temptation, God will always provide the way of escape. Now, this leads to the fifth lie that we must be aware of in the midst of temptation. Lie number five is this. There's no way out of this. My, my only option in this situation is sin, is disobedience. Look at, look at chapter uh, 10, verse 13 again. No temptation is overtaking that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Does not say he might provide the way of escape. It does not say, well, I really hope it happens that he'll provide a way of escape for you. He, what? Will. He will provide the way of escape, which means you will never, ever be in a situation where your only option is to sin. Never will you be put in a situation where that's your only option. That's hopeful, Christian. It should provide you much hope. That's what Paul is saying that we're to escape from. It's an escape from giving in to the temptation, from sinning in the midst of this particular temptation. This is why, I, I think this maybe is one reason why um, many professing Christians get divorced. You ever think about this? Why, why do they get a divorce? Why, what makes them go through with that? They come to the place where they say, I've got no other option. My only option is disobedience. Maybe they, they even get to the place where they say, well, it's not really disobedience because I have no other option. So they start justifying their sin. We do that all the time, even in little things. And so we must beware of this lie, this thinking that our only option in a given situation is disobedience. Because then we'll start thinking that, that God understands. He understands me if I disobey. It's a lie. It's a lie to think, I don't have any other choice but to leave this marriage. It's a lie to think, I don't have any other choice but to raise my voice at my kids when they're out of hand. It's a lie to think, when the finances are tight, uh, I have to take control by being anxious about it. These are lies. These are lies. Don't give in to these temptations. You don't have to. Why? Because God's going to provide a way of escape for you not to give in to it. Because he is 
faithful. Now, the final way we know that God is faithful to us in the midst of temptation is that he allows us to endure it. Look at verse 13 again. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. Here's what I want us to see here. That you may be able to endure it. Did you notice that? It does not say God is faithful by removing you from the temptation or the situation. It's not what it says. He might do that, but he doesn't have to. We can bank on the fact that he will give us the strength to persevere in godliness even if the temptation isn't removed. You endure through it. That's what it says. Or you stand up under it, not removed from it necessarily. Now this truth guards us from the sixth lie that we need to be mindful of. Lie number six is this. The only way I can obey, obey is if I'm removed from the situation or if the temptation goes away. It's a lie. The only way I can, I can obey here is if the temptation is completely removed. The escape that God provides is not always a removal from the situation. The, the pressure that you're feeling in life, the, the heat or the situation itself. Rather, the escape is a, an escape from our sinful response to the temptation. God gives us the ability to endure through it. How? By obeying him in the midst of it. The reality is, I mean, just think about this. The reality is, your situation that's giving you the, the, the option to, to sin or not, your temptation that you may be going through, ultimately is not the real problem. It's not the main problem. The real problem is our own hearts. The temptation does not cause us to respond the way we do. Someone yells at you. You yell back. It didn't, you didn't yell because they yelled at you. It didn't make you. It was your choice to the temptation. It is simply, the temptation is simply the occasion that reveals what is already lingering in our hearts. The temptation does not create sin in our hearts. It just simply exposes it. This is a very important truth that will keep you from justifying and minimizing your sin and blaming it on other people or your circumstances. Think of it in these terms. You've seen sprinkler systems, right? You have a sprinkler system. When the water pressure is on, the sprinkler heads pop up. The water pressure didn't create the sprinkler heads, just exposed them, just revealed them. We had a work day a few years ago at our church, and, uh, and, and I was in charge with another guy and another guy. Me and, me and this other guy were looking for these broken heads on these sprinkler systems while there was another church member over there turning on the water pressure so that we could see them. And we yelled at the guy, hey, turn it on, because we can't, we can't see where the water heads are until the water, pre- water pressure's on, and they're exposed. And some of them are broken, so there's water flying all over the place. felt like it was Schlitterbahn in, in Austin. And, and you know, we're, we're working on these things, but the reality was the water pressure did not create the sprinkler head, just exposed where it was. The same goes with temptation and sin. You see the connection? Temptation does not create sin. In us, temptation reveals sin in our hearts. We need to realize that. Your spouse is being grumpy, and you be grumpy back. They're not making you be grumpy. They're just revealing the sin that is already lingering in your heart. It's the occasion that brings that out. 
So we need to be careful. Our responsibility is to deal with our own hearts in the midst of temptation. Now hear me out. I'm not saying, and I don't think Paul is saying, that if you are tempted by something that you should never remove yourself from the situation because ultimately the situation is not the problem. Not saying that you shouldn't remove yourself. There are times when we need to seek to get away from that pressure so that we can actually work on our own hearts, right? For example, a computer at home is giving you a problem looking at places that you should not. Get rid of the computer. It's obvious. You don't need the computer. You hear me, people, especially young people? You don't need those things. They're luxuries. If there's a problem, get rid of it. But know this, the computer is not the main problem. The computer is not going to, getting rid of the computer is not going to solve the problem. It may help you to work on the real problem, which is your own heart. It's not going to solve it. We were talking with a guy a, a long time ago, accountability kind of thing, and, and, uh, and he had, you know, gone somewhere he should not have, lo- looked at something he should not have on TV, and he said, what, what, what's wrong, man? What's, what's the problem? You have, like, bad cable channels? He said, no, no, just regular TV. And I said, well, there's not, there's not anything really that bad on just regular TV. It's only cable, right? And I was expecting him to say, oh, man, like some of you were thinking, oh, you'd be surprised. There's some pretty bad stuff even on regular TV. That's not what he said. He said, that's not the point. My heart was not in the right place. You see it? Our hearts are the problem. TV is the temptation. We have a choice. Now, we want to be careful here as well. You can get rid of things like TVs and computers, but if you're in a bad marriage that is, you know, tempting you to sin, it doesn't mean you get out of the marriage, right? You fight through it. And this is the kind of thing that Paul is talking through here. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will always provide a way of escape, and he will give you the grace you need to endure through it, no, not necessarily take you out of it. So we looked at six lies. Let's look at the last one, lie number seven. Lie number seven, it's not that big of a deal to give in. Look at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, the Apostle Paul is concluding with a command here. He's saying, in light of all that we've covered so far, in light of the fact that you're not above any sin, in light of the fact that your situation is not unique to you, you're not alone, in light of the fact that God is faithful, you can bank on his faithfulness because he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will give you an escape from your sin, though not necessarily an escape from your situation but he will give you the strength to endure through it. In light of all of these truths, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee it. Run away from your sin. Run fast, run hard, run long. Get away from it is what he's saying. But it's interesting here. Paul does not say flee from sin. He says flee from what? Idolatry. It's interesting. Do you have idols in your house? I mean, he just mentioned Israel who gave into idolatry. Now he's saying to the church, you flee from idolatry. Is he talking to people here who have statues made up in their houses that they, they bow down to? I don't think so. But we do have images. We do have desires in our own hearts that lead us to worship something other than God, even as believers. And this is interesting here that he does not say flee from sin but rather flee from idolatry 
What that means is we are choosing to worship something other than God every time we sin. That's what sin is. Sin is idolatry. You are preferring this over God. Sin is not just simply breaking a list of rules that God has set up. Sin is saying, I, I prefer this over you, God. That's a worship problem. We're worshiping something other than God. And that's a big deal. When we think of sin in that way, that's a big deal. It is so easy for us to believe the lie that it's not that big of a deal for me to give in to this or that temptation. But because it is idolatry, sin is idolatry, it is a big deal. We can flee from it because we have these promises. I don't know if you noticed, walking through this passage, we're not just saying, stop believing lies and start believing truth. We're saying, stop believing lies and lay hold of God's promises, not just truth, just random truth statements. Oh, this is true. Like this, this podium's made of wood. That's true. It doesn't change my heart, but the promises of God do. And that's what we've been looking at. We're to believe the promises, truth that are for our benefit from God. God promises, we saw, that he will not give us more than we can bear. He will give us the strength to fight against any particular sin. He promises that he will give us a way out, an escape from our sin. He promises to give us the grace to endure through any temptation, not not necessarily take us out of it. He promises these things to us. Why? Because he's faithful. Because God is faithful. And God is not about to deny who he is. You see how you can bank on these promises here? The reputation of God is at stake. God is not about to deny who he is. He is God. He is God. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that God is actually God and he will uphold the promises that he has for you? Your hope for enduring temptation is rooted in the character of God. And God's character is most clearly seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We mentioned earlier that we can find great comfort in the fact that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses and he sympathizes with our bent towards sin because he was tempted like we are. But there's more to it than that. I mean, it's one thing for someone to say, "Mm, I feel really bad for what you're going through. I know what you're going through. That's comforting. But it doesn't help us with our fight against sin. Hebrews chapter 4 says more than that. Don't turn there now, but, but let, me just, let me just summarize what Hebrews chapter 4, you can look at it later. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, talks about how Jesus sympathizes with our weakness because he went through similar temptations as us, yet it says this crucial statement, yet he was without sin. That's really important. Jesus was tempted like us, so he knows what we're going through, but he didn't give in, ever. Do you realize that Jesus did not even have one millisecond of a bad attitude when he lived life on this earth? (laughs) Not even a millisecond of a bad attitude or a grumbling, complaining heart. That's the case with us every day. Now, why is that important? Because we need a substitute. We need someone who lived a perfect life for us because we don't. We can't. Jesus did for us. That's good news. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to 
stand before a holy God. God is holy, we are sinners, and we deserve his judgment. Jesus came to this earth. This is what we just celebrated during Christmas. He came to this earth fully man, fully God, and he lived a perfect life for us, life we could not live, yet we were required to live in order to be in the presence of a holy God. Jesus lived it for us. And then he went to the cross. You know what he did at the cross? He took the punishment that you and I deserve for the sins we commit every day. And that's not just sins of action. That's sins in our, our thinking. That's, that's desiring something too much that's not God and replacing God with those desires. Jesus took the punishment for us. He took the punishment for our idolatry on the cross. And the punishment he took was the full wrath of God the Father that we deserve and that people get when they go to hell. Jesus took it. He didn't stay dead. He didn't just die on a cross and remain in the tomb. He rose again, and that demonstrates he conquered over sin and death for us. There's a lot of hope for us as Christians to fight against temptation. We have Jesus, who was without sin, lived a perfect life, and accomplished all that was necessary for us to be made right with God. And I, I would just say to you, if you're here and you don't, you've not embraced Jesus Christ and the work he accomplished for you, I would encourage you to talk to one of your leaders about that gospel. So, let me conclude. Fight the lies of temptation that are ever-present before us, knowing that Jesus has already fought for you, and he won. Christian, he won for you. So, let's go to, go to battle, fighting temptation, laying hold of the promises of God rooted in the character of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. I wouldn't even be able to stand here preaching were it not for Jesus. We wouldn't even be able to sit here listening to your very words to us were it not for Jesus Christ, who was tempted in every way like us yet was without sin. So God, we are so thankful for Jesus, knowing that even as Christians, our hearts are prone to wander from the God we love. So we pray that Jesus would be more precious to us than whatever sin we're, we're tempted to give into. And we pray that we would lay hold of the promises that you have for us that are rooted in who you are. You're faithful, God. You're faithful. We ask that you prove yourself to be faithful in our lives by fighting against sin. We pray these things for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to stand one last time and uh, sing this prayer with us. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. This is also in your bulletin. Savior.